Hey guys. Hey Mark, nice to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Stephen. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear, thankfully. We've we've cleared the first hurdle hurdle there. Everything's gonna be great. Okay. Going forward now. But uh, Mark, maybe you could tell um our listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself before we, we get into uh, some of your books and some of your work. How would you describe what you do? Sure. Well, my background is somewhat traditional. I used to work in investment banking in New York, and then I was a partner at a Silicon Valley strategy firm. But while I was working out in Silicon Valley around 2015, 2016, um, I became exposed to ideas that challenged my worldview, basically. And since then, I've written five books and um, have been looking at the nature of reality, but also looking at the world around us and what's actually going on. All the big stuff basically yeah. okay great so i mean looking back at that time uh your time in investment banking and the rat race in new york what was your word worldview what would best describe the way you perceived the world i was nihilistic materialistic in that i thought life was random and meaningless that we're just kind of a material blob when you die that's the end and the universe is just random so you live you do things in your life and then you die and that's it so it was a very bleak worldview but that's what i thought i was our science was teaching us more and more and that anything spiritual or religious was just superstition from the past. So I really believed that back then. Okay. So, I mean, maybe, I mean, just to take a devil's advocate here. So if everything is materialistic and death is oblivion and it's the end, uh, does that necessarily mean life's meaningless in your view? Well, the way that I looked at it was, cause I, I would ask myself this question all the time as I was staying up all night working, like, why am I doing this? Uh, I thought that I could rationalize meaning and make up my own meaning, but ultimately there wasn't meaning embedded in the nature of reality itself. Like the universe didn't have a purpose for anything happening. It was just all happenstance, like chemical reactions of particles interacting with each other led to us being here, but there was no intelligence behind it. That was the way I, that's what I concluded. So what does provide this meaning then, you know, if the materiality isn't enough and if we're all just chemicals and it's just basically a happenstance and it doesn't really it's not really going anywhere there's no you know ulterior motives or grand design what, what is it that gives you meaning well that what i was describing was my prior worldview and then i stumbled across science that challenged that worldview uh particularly the the science of consciousness mm-hmm. and my first book and my podcast series go into this my first book is called an end to upside down thinking and the podcast is called where is my mind it's all about this question of consciousness and the brain and science magazine has even acknowledged this is a mainstream uh, outlet it says the number two question remaining in all of science is I'm paraphrasing. How is it that consciousness could come out of a brain? Because our brain is something that's physical. Our consciousness is something we have. It's allowing us all of us to experience right now. But the big question in science is how does something that's immaterial like consciousness, like I can't touch consciousness, but I could touch my body. I can touch my chair. That's physical. So how could consciousness, something non-physical, come out of something physical like a brain or a body? And what I, as I explored that issue, what I discovered is that there's a lot of evidence suggesting that the brain does not produce consciousness. In other words, our brain is more like an antenna receiver or like a filtering mechanism or like a blindfold, meaning there's a much broader reality and our brain is showing us a little sliver of it. So that's a, a, a basic thesis that I explore in much more detail, but you could already imagine how that could change someone's worldview. Because I used to think that consciousness comes from the brain just through chemical reactions. And then when you shut off the brain, that's the end of your capacity for experience. And all of a sudden I was coming across evidence that challenged that. So I've been in this 
kind of disoriented period for a few years trying to figure re reconfigure my belief system yeah i mean consciousness is is a fascinating topic and like you say we, we kind of just finding out what we don't know about consciousness i think neuroscience is a fairly you know young uh, field of study we you know we, we're developing new ways of scanning the brain and uh, trying to understand consciousness but i mean to my mind at least it seemed overwhelmingly likely that consciousness was a product of the brain and everything that we are as a human being personality memories all those things are contained within the brain and if you destroy parts of the brain you quite clearly and objectively damage parts of your identity as well so i mean that to me and a lot of people would seem to imply that everything that you are exists within this this gray matter but you say there's some scientific reasons to believe perhaps that's not true yes so again this is explored particularly in my first book and podcast where i go through piece of piece after piece of evidence to challenge the belief system that you just described which used to be my belief system too so one category of evidence is around the idea that when under certain conditions, when there is a reduction in brain functioning, there's actually an enriched consciousness, which is kind of the inverse of what you might expect. If the brain is supposed to produce consciousness, or if you were to have an enriched experience, you might expect more brain activity. So the most extreme example of that is a near-death experience where a person is in, let's say, cardiac arrest. Sometimes they're clinically dead. They have barely any brain functioning, if any at all. Sometimes there's no measurable brain functioning. And yet when they're resuscitated, they come back and say that they had an experience that was realer than real. So it was an enriched consciousness at this time of minimal brain functioning. Um, Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia is one of the people that studied things like this. And he said, when I interviewed him, he said, we're left with this paradox that at a time when the brain isn't functioning, the mind is functioning better than ever. And sometimes people actually report things from seeing things from outside their body, as crazy as that sounds. And then when they're resuscitated, they can accurately report what happened, which suggests that it's not a hallucination. So that's just one example. Another example is uh, savant syndrome. Some people where they have uh, an impairment in their brain in some way, and yet they have extraordinary mathematical abilities, musical abilities, like the movie Rain Man, the character Dustin Hoffman played. These are people that have impairments in their brain, and yet they have an enriched consciousness in certain ways. Another example is terminal lucidity. These are cases where a person is nearing the time of death. Let's say they've had Alzheimer's for years, and all of a sudden they snap back into clarity right before they die, and then they end up dying. So you have this impaired brain, but then they have a, a consciousness that doesn't match up with what's going on in the brain. So that's a few of the cases. I call it less brain, more consciousness. There are a few of those. And then there's the really crazy anomalous stuff of psychic functioning and evidence that consciousness survives bodily death. And just to briefly give some examples, um, this category of psychic phenomena, also known as PSI, spelled P-S-I, there are many cases where scientists have studied psychic abilities in labs. And what they often find is that people aren't 100% psychic, but they're psychic beyond what chance would predict. So I'll give you an example of a telepathy study, allegations of mind-to-mind -mind communication, which is suggesting, if that's true, that consciousness is some, somehow outside of the brain or outside of this physical form. That's why it's significant here. And the classic study, it's known as the Gonsfeld experiment, where you separate two people. One is in one, one person is in one room. We'll call that person Bob. And Jane is in another room far away. And the experimenters ask Jane to mentally send to Bob in the other room what she's looking at. The experimenters show her something to look at. And she doesn't claim to have any psychic abilities and, and is allegedly sending something to Bob in the other room. So after a while, Bob comes out of his uh, state where he's just hanging out. And the experimenters show him four images and they say, which of the four was Jane sending you? And if, if there were no effect at all, we would expect 
the person in Bob's room to guess correctly uh, one out of four times. It should approach 25% because nothing should happen, right? And it, what happens in fact though, is that it approaches 32%, which statistically is highly significant. Um, Dr. Dean Radin, uh, the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which was founded by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell. I'm actually on the board of the organization. But Dean wrote a book called Real Magic where he aggregates these statistical analyses. I just gave you one. And they're, they, they're in the category of six sigma, meaning that they're a, a billion to one odds against chance happening. Even though the effect is small, it's statistically very significant. And I'll, I'll pause after this one more point. Dr. Jessica Utz, who's the uh, 2016 president of the American Statistical Association, she did a report um, after evaluating the U.S. government's psychic spying program in 1995, evaluating the alleged evidence for psychic phenomena. And she said in that report, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. Okay, so there's a lot put forward there that, that and it's all fascinating. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to picking your brains on it. So suppose, I suppose the first one was uh, near death experiences. There are lots of accounts and, and anecdotes and I think a fair few studies done on it. A, a lot of them I've seen didn't turn up much. I've not seen the ones you're referring to, so I'll definitely have to take a look at that. But I mean, with you saying sort of near death experience and somebody being clinically dead, isn't that a contradiction in terms? It's, it's very binary, isn't it? You're either one, you're either dead or you're not. And the, the operative word in near-death experiences, is, as far as I can see, is the word near. Yeah, that's a great point. The person didn't actually die because they came back to life. And that's why it is near death. But what happens in many of the cases, the strongest ones, they're called veridical out-of-body experiences because what is alleged to have been experienced out of the body when the person says their consciousness was hovering over the operating table. When they come back, what they say was validated by the doctor or by family members. So it's a verified memory. And in those cases, we might not know what happens after death from those experiences. We can only guess because it's near death, like you say. But we have some information about their consciousness because in, in the strongest cases, and there's a book called The Self Does Not Die. It goes through over 100 of these verified veridical out-of-body experiences. Um, you can timestamp the memory. So if they say, oh, I saw the doctor doing X, Y, and Z, well, they had something measuring the person's physiology as the person was in this state of apparent clinical death where their body was just not functioning. And so we know what their brain was doing and yet they come back with a memory at that time. And we say, wait, how could they have known something? How could they have accurately perceived when their body was in that condition? That's paradoxical because you have a highly functioning consciousness, at least functional enough to get an accurate depiction of something from a position outside the body, which is even stranger. And it's at a time when the body under the current belief of biology and neuroscience shouldn't be able to produce that kind of memory. Also, people would, would point to as well, when you're approaching a near-death experience or you're, you're you know, in, a, in a grave, uh, critically ill condition, your brain can produce lots of like substances. I think ketamine is quite common in that sense. All these kinds of substances that would possibly potentially provide the kind of perceptions and experiences you're describing. Is that something you take into account as well? Yeah, it's something I've looked at. And when I interviewed many of the scientists like Dr. Grayson and others, they have counters to all of that. So they've explored each one. And there's a book I'd recommend. It's called After by Dr. Bruce Grayson, which is his explorations of many years as a UVA professor into near-death experiences. But to summarize, because you could go through each one, like oxygen, carbon dioxide, uh, DMT or ketamine, like all of these different things that kind of mimic certain aspects of the near-death experience. What the researchers often find is that you don't get every aspect of a classic near-death experience from any one chemical. 
or the lack thereof. You might get certain elements where a person has euphoria, for example, but you don't get things like a life review where people somehow relive their whole life in a flash and they become the people that they impacted during their life and it happens in a compressed amount of time. You don't have that with certain chemical reactions in other contexts. So that's what I would say is that you, do, you don't capture the, whole, the totality of the near-death experience. And then what the, when the researchers say when I ask them about this is the verified memories are not explained through physiological means because you can't explain a memory, a perception from outside the body from that vantage point. Okay. I mean, I, I need to take a look at some of these uh, reading recommendations you've given for sure, because I'm, I'm not living in the nihilistic world, but I'm certainly in the sort of godless, materialist, materialistic, skeptical world for sure. And I suppose that leads me to also uh, note that, I mean, you're talking about observing these things scientifically, which is great. You're talking about evidence and that's what you're looking for. So we've had, you know, uh, out-of-body experiences you've put forward, psychic ability, telephony, things like that. Um but if that was observed and demonstrated, wouldn't that then just fall under the remit of the physical world, the natural laws? Wouldn't it just expand our understanding of those things rather than transgress them? Yeah, to me, it's a little bit of both. Um, it's an expanded view of the nature of reality that could accommodate phenomena like this, which under a materialistic perspective would be anomalous or they would be not permissible because they just wouldn't make sense. And I, so I think we're on the same page that what I'm describing is actually an expanded view of the nature of reality. And what I, the reason my book's called An End to Upside Down Thinking is that the traditional materialistic view says we start with matter. There was a big bang and then lots of chemical reactions happened. 13.8 billion years later, roughly, you have the evolution of a human being that has a brain and then consciousness comes at the end. Mm -hmm. I, I flip that and I'm summarizing the work of many other people to say that actually there's a lot of evidence suggesting that consciousness maybe comes first and the material world is within consciousness, meaning we don't have to throw out biology or chemistry or even physics, but they're just recontextualized where consciousness is the substrate of reality. And that framework would be able to accommodate those anomalies I talked about, plus things, this is again at the University of Virginia, a credible or institution, they have over 2,500 cases of young children with memories of a life that is not theirs. And in the strongest cases, the, the researchers can find historical records or medical records that match what this young child is saying. Um, I'm just going to keep mentioning pieces of evidence because people... How, how, how specific are these children's claims? Because obviously things that children say are going to match onto some time and some children somewhere for some reasons. Yeah, some of them are very, very specific, like a World right. War II fighter pilot who was the only person in the plane that crashed. Um, I would recommend checking out episode seven of my podcast, Where Is My Mind? Jim Tucker from UVA is talking about some of these cases, but also his books go through some of the strongest ones. Dr. Ian Stevenson has books that are like this thick that go through some of you know his analysis as a psychiatrist. He wasn't thinking about reincarnation as a possibility, but that was his conclusion that that was the best way he could accommodate these strange memories. Okay. I mean, despite the um, the evidence and the data that some people have issue with, one of the things as well that others might point out is that a lot of this is very um, comforting. It's, it's, it's almost nice to think that we're not just primates wandering around, slaves to our biology, you know, no free will and that death is oblivion. Uh, we can actually learn that our consciousness lives on. There is some sort of magical aspect to humans and consciousness and there is somewhere else after our death. And does that, does that ever have you second guessing yourself that a lot of this is quite favorable to the, the sort of human ego? 
Yeah, you're asking great questions, Stephen. You're like checking the box of all the things that I was going through several years ago. And where I can where I come out on that question is that the way the evidence makes us feel should be irrelevant. So reality might be comforting or it might not be comforting. That's not my interest. My interest is what is the data pointing to? And I got to a point where I saw too many pieces where I couldn't preserve my old worldview. Um, another, just one more example that came out in 2018, a paper published by Etzel Cardenia, an American psychologist, which is the official peer-reviewed academic journal of the American Psychological Association. Dr. Cardenia, who I also interviewed, he uh, aggregated the evidence for all these anomalous phenomena where it's been done in the lab, and they published the paper at American Psychologist. Traditionally, they might have said, we're not going to look at this. So they looked at his statistical analysis and said, look, in multiple categories of these alleged psychic phenomena, whether it's telepathy, precognition, which is knowing or sensing the future before it happens, psychokinesis, which is mind impacting matter, remote viewing, which is seeing things from far away with the mind alone, which the U.S. government did and declassified. They said, we are going to publish this paper. So to me, that was also a very powerful piece. Sure. A lot of uh, things to add to my reading list, for sure. Maybe we can talk a little bit about your book on the Great Reset. Now, this is this is a term I see thrown around all the time for different reasons you know some of it extends to the the crazy conspiratorial end of the spectrum uh others more reasonable i'm I'm just trying to get a fix on what you mean by that term how how would you summarize the great reset well one of the reasons i think i felt comfortable writing this book it's called an end to the upside down reset and it was just published is that i didn't have to invoke conspiracy theory with it because this was a term invented by the world economic forum announced by klaus schwab the head of the world economic forum alongside then prince charles in june of 2020 and then a book was published covid19 the great reset by schwab and his colleague thierry malaret and then a sequel was published called the great narrative so what i did in this book was to look through what they actually said and what is the world economic forum talking about otherwise and what kind of picture does that paint now i think the, the term conspiracy starts to get into the intent potentially behind this. And I even acknowledge in my book that I don't know what their intent is because I think there are a lot of people who have a positive intent and they want to implement something because they think it's going to help. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's not going to help. A good intention doesn't necessarily entail a good result. But I do think there are also some people in the world who are psychopathic, who lack empathy and they want to control people. Like, I just don't know who's who. And, and in some ways it's not... Um, is relevant to my exploration. What I try to show is that the Great Reset objectively, regardless of the intentions, is very dangerous for society and it's not a good thing for liberty. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we can go through some of it because I see a lot of the, a lot of memes flying around. There's a lot of interest in the World Economic Forum and they may be as sinister as everyone says, but there's a lot of, um, I mean, what's nice to hear you say is like you've gone through it bit by bit and you've you've actually seen what they're asking and what they want and what their ideological goals are. And you seem to remain agnostic on whether this is malicious or, or not. Uh, but I mean, one of the things that's thrown around all the time is Z-bugs. I don't know if you've seen this idea that we, we're all going to be made to eat insects. Uh, and I was somebody who was kind of ahead of the game on this in the sense that, and I appreciate this is where I will lose a lot of people, where I don't eat animals. And I've always been interested in this idea of an alternate food source, uh, you know, something that's sustainable, less harm, uh, a misery visit on animals, but, you know, nutritionally sound, a good source of protein. And I've seen people give talks about eating insects you know over a decade ago that made sense i know other cultures do it without a second thought uh yet the west seemed very squeamish about it and i just wondered what your your take was on this idea of 
the suggestion that maybe we should incorporate insects into our diet. Yeah, it's not something I talk about too much in the book, but I, I do mention it in someone else's quote with regard to uh, the de desire to end farming that's come up. And, and I quote Matt Walsh, who's a conservative commentator and says, look, this is genocidal for some people who need farming to subsist. And there's no way that we could get cricket bars, enough cricket bars to feed all these people. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Cancel unnecessary subscriptions with Rocket Money today. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. So that's the context in which I talk about it. I don't talk about it too much otherwise. Um, insects are not a part of my diet. I, I, I do find it a little bit strange the way it's being pushed. It's First, That's personally, yeah, there, there's something strange about how hard that is being pushed. There are so many food sources out there, even for those who don't consume animal products. So um, I, there is this kind of meme of like the peasants will eat the bugs. Yeah. I don't know. For, I don't know for sure. And I do keep an open, open mind to the possibility of nefarious intent for some people. You know, it's funny. I, I went to uh, there's, a, there's a, a Dutch guy who wrote a book about this. I think his surname's actually Dyke, D-I-C-K-E. It's pronounced. And he gives a very compelling TED talk about the, the nutritional aspects of, you know, farming insects. And I went to a conference to see him speak many years ago and they actually handed out samples. And I'm somebody who's not had any sort of meat products for way over 10 years now. And I, I sampled these insects because I was really curious. It's like a mealworm and it tasted like, um, I don't know if you have these stateside, but we call them pork scratchings. It's like a dried pig rind. Are you familiar mm. with that kind of snack? And yeah. yeah, someone who's been deprived of animal products for so long, it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> I have to say, so it kind of changed my perception about what it can be, but I totally, totally understand the squeamishness behind it. And the idea of, you know, force, you know, it feels a little bit nanny state, doesn't it? Kind of um, dictating to people what they must and, and mustn't eat. Yeah. That, that's my bigger issue in general is that a group of people wants to dictate behavior, whether it's what we eat or other things, we didn't appoint them. We didn't explicitly and voluntarily ask for that. And whether it's through eating or other means, that's one of the big dangers of the Great Reset because it's all about centralized power and control. Ray J just put in the chat that schools in Wales uh, are giving kids bugs or insects, as we say, in school dinners already. I'll have to look into that. I do know a local supermarket was selling dried bugs a while back. Maybe the bug revolution is afoot and there's nothing we can do about it. All, all eight feet. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this idea of the, the World Economic Forum. What kind of things jumped out at you as you know potentially concerning or you know shades of you know potential malice yeah well it's a very powerful organization and that's something i do just chronicle objectively in the book the number of people that they have in their young global leaders program and they're in governments all over the world klaus schwab has even said 
they, we penetrate the cabinets with the Young Global Leaders Program, yeah. which means that whatever the ideology is, that is in positions of power. And also on the World Economic Forum's website, it lists its partners in industry, and it's just the who's who, basically. Of, and that it doesn't necessarily mean that every single partner is fully aligned with the World Economic Forum. We don't know that for sure, but it shows that the ideology is at least somewhat connected in the private sector and in the public sector. Mm. And with that kind of influence, um, a lot could be done. Is, I mean, isn't this, a, they seem, I mean, I'm, I know you're not coming at it from this ultra tinfoil conspiratorial aspect of it, but I mean, they seem remarkably open about their goals, don't they? And uh, they seem to behave in a way you'd expect a political lobbying group to behave. Yeah, very open. I mean, writing books about it, giving speeches. Yeah. This is a great reset. This is what we want to do. And they couch it as this is a compassionate thing for society. Um, and one of the themes of my book is that things that sound compassionate on the surface can fool people who have a very caring intent. That's actually my biggest concern with the Great Reset. It's not about the nefarious people that are involved all over the world, because I do acknowledge that exists. But I think that's a relative minority compared to the broader population. And if the, if the masses can be fooled into thinking something is compassionate when it's actually going to be potentially harmful, that's the big danger. So one of the reasons I wanted to write the book and, and talk about it so much is to hopefully alert people who might not see through the potential dangers to say, wait a second, I'm a caring person. And because I'm a caring person, I wouldn't support this if I knew what it actually meant. Yeah, I mean, I find that fascinating because people look back at, you know, atrocities or harms done by regimes or countries, and they they look back at them through these, this filter of these are mustache twirling villains who are just happy to openly do evil. And really, these are people who think they're doing good. They're either saving something, preventing something, preserving something that they feel is, is good and proper. Uh, and I think that that's something people could do to keep an eye on in, in terms of self-righteousness with their convictions, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say from my own experience, just having worked in Silicon Valley and in investment banking, being around a lot of people in positions of power, I had heard about Davos even before I learned about the Great Reset and people talking about going. And it, these are people that are just want to have a positive impact or that it's a very prestigious thing to go to. So I don't think everyone that's attending Davos is necessarily evil. But I do think there are, there could be people. But it's not. I, 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 there's this tendency sometimes to just equate, like, it, because someone's affiliated with an organization, then you attribute all these things to them. And that's a separate leap that requires different evidence to prove that to be true. It might be true sometimes, but not always. And I just want to point that out because um, the, the intent is not always clear with each individual. And at the same time, sometimes the individuals might have their own opinions on what is good for others. And even though their intent might be good, they might want to push something on the population. And what I talk about in the book is the notion of collectivism that comes up a lot where like, let's do things for the benefit of society. And in some ways that's a good thing, but when, it's when it leaves out the individual, it can be very dangerous. And we've seen this happen in communistic regimes, fascistic regimes, where the collective takes priority over the individual. It's like, oh, but this is for the greater good. And therefore, we can do these horrible things to individuals. And you can see how the psychology could become warped. So I, I'm trying to bring attention to that. Yeah, it's a, it's a very easy way of creating some sort of binary thought, I suppose, isn't it? Having tribalistic in and out groups. Um, you mentioned in your, your book as well, you speak a little bit about leftist ideology. And I'm I'm centre left from a sort of UK perspective, uh, just about hanging in there, very, very angry and dismayed with a lot of my so-called leftist 
friends and allies in, in seemingly how far their ideology has gone. I also count myself as a liberal, but I understand that has a slightly different connotation in the States. I think that's more, you know, tied with, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, you'd be distinguished from sort of classical liberalism. Maybe you could clear up some of these terms for people who are not, not familiar with them. Sure. Well, in the book, I talk a lot about this term leftism because the Great Reset's ideology seems to parallel many of the tenets of leftism. And like you point out, leftism is distinct from liberalism. And I use a framework from a conservative analyst, uh, Dennis Prager, who's broken this down a lot. And he's, he's like, look, the problem we have is, is left. And so left versus liberal, what's an example? If you take the category of race, leftists might say, well, we should judge people on the basis of superficial qualities like their skin color or something else. Whereas, or segregate people in colleges and dormitories based on those superficial qualities, whereas a liberal was, would say we should not judge on those superficial qualities. Uh, a liberal might say, yeah, we should have free speech, whereas someone on the far left or a leftist would say, well, we, we should limit speech because certain things are hate speech based on what we arbitrarily deem to be hate speech. Uh, a leftist might say we need something like socialism or communism where there's complete control by the government over the economy, whereas a liberal might say we need more of a capitalistic society, even though we want the government involved. So it's sort of mm. like this extreme version of all of these more classically liberal uh, positions. And the concern, I, I think you expressed it very well as someone, you, you call yourself left-leaning, but not far left like this, is to alert those who have that leftist inclination, but don't want to go all the way to see, look, there is a problem when it goes too far. And I quote Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist in my book, who makes a really good point. It was like a light bulb went off for me. He says, we have a, a good sense of what too far is on the far right. And we can say, look at World War II. That's a really good example. But do we have the, the measures for what constitutes too far on the left? We don't have the same uh, points where the red flags start to go off. And maybe that's the issue is that things are going too far and we haven't identified what the markers are for where it goes too far on the left. Yeah, it's it's a tricky waters politically at the moment, and a lot of people are finding themselves politically homeless and dismayed with what they're finding on the the so you know their own side, not too uh, enticed by what they're seeing on the opposite side. So I, I'm sort of in this camp where I see all the problems of far leftism and you know you know the, the excesses of socialist ideology, identity politics, things like that. And I often find that I find a lot of common cause with right leaning conservatives, especially in the states. But the more I travel in that direction, I mean you mentioned. Prague there, which is a great example. That institution and the individual seem to think that all these things can be solved just by a commitment to God, the Christian God, uh, no less. So the more we move away from, I mean, that doesn't feel like that fits in particularly well with liberalism, or it's certainly, I've always put, put liberalism into the same camp as the modern enlightenment, and it feels very difficult to sort of shoehorn any sort of monotheistic framework into any understanding of liberalism as well. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, now that I've, I have a, uh, let's say, a post-materialist metaphysics, where I think there is some kind of spiritual dimension, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly open to that, but I don't think it's, I think there are other issues to look at culturally and politically where, like, I would consider myself a libertarian, not, right. not on the right or the left, but I'm critical of the left in this book because it parallels the Great Reset. And I actually wrote a book called An End to Upside Down Liberty, where I go through the rationale for libertarianism and why it makes sense morally and otherwise. So I there are issues from many different political stances. Um, and I, I totally agree with you, but what I want to look at with regard to the great reset is like, what is the ideology there? And it's certainly not a right wing ideology. It's much more on this far left. Well, I mean, you, it's interesting because we've sort of 
spun back around to the idea of God and monotheism and the metaphysical. And you talk about this being somewhat of a spiritual war in your book. And what, what do you mean by that? I mean, how would you say spiritual war plays into the things we're seeing play out uh, on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Well, when I look at things like the, the, what I would regard as the battle for liberty, effectively, whether it's the Great Reset or other initiatives to try to limit human freedom, um, I wrote another book called An End to Upside Down Contact, where I talk about the evidence that humans are not alone and that there are other beings out there. And to just give a very brief sum- summary, one of my conclusions was not only are we not alone, but there seems to be a spectrum of types of intelligences out there, whether they're physical beings or beings that we can't ordinarily see with our eyes, like multidimensional. Some of them seem to have a, a benefit, uh, want to help humanity, and others are malevolent. And when I look at what's happening in the world today, I just see a lot of parallels between that analysis of the dark light and these other intelligent beings and the types of things happening sociologically and the, mm. the types of draconian policies that are being implemented. To me, it's beyond just uh, human evil. I think there's something beyond it. But I suppose when you people would point back at, say, the, you know, the dark ages where the you know magical thinking, spirituality, the metaphysical run, uh, you know, everything. And what we saw was a lot of oppression of a, a distinct lack of liberty. And it seems like only through sort of secular enlightenment, enlightenment, we've come through that other side. So, I mean, how, how do we stop this sort of return to the spiritual to the idea of something bigger than ourselves? Uh, how do we stop this turning into tyranny, which historically it appears to lead to? I think there's a balance with it. It's, it's like not losing rationality within a spiritual framework. At least that's been my approach is to ask the question, what is the nature of reality? And my conclusion so far is that there's, there seems to be something spiritual. I don't fully understand it. But in addition to that, that doesn't mean we just believe everything that someone says who has a spiritual inclination or claims they have a connection with some other being that there's a discernment that comes with it. So it's it's having both together in a more evolved society. So you make a great point. I mean, could this be tied, in, tied into the idea of, you know, char- not necessarily character, identity is the good word. So we, we're seeing a lot of identity politics, certainly on the left. And obviously every act has a reaction in that sense. A lot of people are now digging down into opposite identity politics as a way to push back uh everything that perhaps maybe give us meaning gave us meaning at some point whether it be the idea of a nation you know being nationalistic is being torn down as something sinister maybe being a person of faith or religious is is being attacked from all fronts are people sort of hungry for some sort of identity some sort of common cause now yeah maybe it's just part of human nature is to want to have a knee-jerk reaction against something and to have an enemy that we're fighting against and to try to protect the victim. There's a whole like psychological element that probably is feeding in on a, on a sociological level when you combine human beings. So what I try to do is to just, in my own practice, because it's easy to get caught up into like the outrage emotions with this stuff, is just to acknowledge what's happening and to just identify it. And that's what I'm trying to do with my books and when I talk is to just say, this is the issue. Let's look rationally at how it can be solved rather than letting the emotions override the rationality. So I suppose I'm really curious as well. So we've, you've spoke about this idea of consciousness living on there being some sort of metaphysics, uh, that way we're still trying to figure out what it is. Where are you on the phenomenon of ghosts? Do are you somebody who uh, has, you know, had a ghost sighting? Do you believe in ghost sighting? Do you believe people when they tell you they've seen ghosts? I think it's possible. I've never had a personal experience. And there's a quote from Alan Turing, the famous computer scientist, who said, this was back in the 1950s, and I'm going to paraphrase. He said, unfortunately, the evidence for um, 
telepathy and other psychic phenomena is is overwhelming or extraordinary. And he would basically said, oh, how we would love for these things not to be true. And he says, the minute that you acknowledge that those sorts of things are true, then the idea of ghosts and other non-physical beings become possible. Um, and that's where I land on this. There's also research done at the Windbridge Research Center in Tucson, Arizona, where they've done uh, studies on alleged mediums. So these are people who claim they can talk to dead people or whatever mm. the con- whatever residue of their consciousness exists, that they can communicate and accurate, accurately get information. And so William James from Harvard studied this 100 years plus years ago, and other people have studied some of the anecdotes, and they say there's good evidence. But what the Windbridge Research Center has done in their preliminary studies is to use five levels of blinding to try to control for all the things skeptics would say of like, oh, you're just doing cold reading. So they have it done over the phone. They have the researcher actually ask the questions to the psychic, this medium, rather than the person who has the deceased relative. Long story short, in their preliminary studies, they have a statistical evidence that something's happening beyond chance, where the medium is getting information through unknown means beyond what chance would predict. So to go back to your original question, would that make something like a ghost or a spirit possible? I would say if the statistical evidence is right, then it would be possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's, it's funny because I, I was just about to say when you mentioned psychic mediums, that I was, I was instantly going to talk about, you know, cold reading, hot reading, linguistic, you know, tricks, Barnum statements, because it, it feels like every time I sort of listen to sort of a psychic reading, I can, I can kind of see straight away what they're doing. And it's obviously intentional. These people, a lot of the ones, all that I've, the, all the ones I've observed anyways, seem to know they don't have any magical powers, but seem to know the tricks uh, they can do in order to give the perception that they have. And I don't know, uh, I mean, I'm sure you must have heard of James Randi, but uh, can you, I don't know if you recall the the um, monetary prize he put forward for anyone who was able to demonstrate, uh, you know, the supernatural abilities in, in clinical settings. And I, I believe that amount is still up for offer, but it remains unclaimed. So I was just wondering, what, what do you think is going on there? Do you feel that perhaps science hasn't got to the point where it can con- Include that these things exist and it's just a matter of time or are these things in your mind set up to fail and that's why they're not passing this this final bar well they they seem to pass the bar with with trials that use um that have a a large n basically so you need lots of people in these studies to get the statistical data because it's these are ephemeral phenomena like you say first of all there are frauds um, but what I'm looking for is, is it real ever? Because if, if it's real one time, then something's going on that we got to figure out. And that's what the Winbridge Research Center does. They screen for legit psychics using different tools. With regard to the Randy Prize, um, apparently there was a lot of fine print with that in terms of who gets the rights to the study. It's very costly to run these studies, to do it right. properly and to have all the subjects. So it's not so simple. And I, don't, I didn't know him personally, but there were a lot of people, the scientists that I've talked to, who, who just did not think he was a very ethical person and didn't want to engage. So I'm just relaying to you what I've heard because I actually came in after the prize was, I got interested in this stuff after the prize was not really talked about as much. And we've got these studies in, in uh, peer reviewed journals, like the one in the American psychologist by Dr. Cardenia. I mean, that's a pretty high bar. Why did they accept that statistical evidence? Maybe we'll get a skilled psychic medium to contribute one day so we can technically interview James Randi. I wonder if that's a possibility. Maybe, maybe James Randi could claim his own prize money from the other side. That'd be an interesting huh. headline, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just moving back to this spiritual war that you term in your book, do you see this as a spiritual war between humans and, uh, and nations and belief systems? Or is this, this more of an internal thing, an internal struggle? Hmm. Well, if you get to the point where I've gotten to, at least 
this is my hypothesis because I don't know how reality works, is that it's something post-materialist, some mm. kind of a spiritual dimension. Then that opens possibilities and questions as to, well, what is the nature of this spiritual dimension? How does it relate to the world that we operate in, in which it seems very much material? What's the interaction between that? So that's been a lot of my exploration in my last few books is trying to like bring this metaphysical heady stuff into the world that we exist in and what's the connection. And I don't fully know. That's, that's the short version, but it does seem that there are forces of light and dark. And what we see in our world with psychopathic personalities, people who commit murder and horrible things, we know that exists. And then we know sure, there's some really good people too, that those might be mirrorings of these energies manifesting in our world. And what that means, what are the consequences of this is something I'm still grappling with. Like what's at stake? So let's say I'm right, generally speaking, that it's a spiritual war. Then what's at stake for all of us and as a society? Like, is there, let's say we have a soul, let's say our consciousness, we might call that a soul that, in, that inhabits our body. Um, what's at stake? Like, is there a risk that we could be trapped somehow, or there could be our development on a spiritual level could be inhibited if the Great Reset or these other draconian policies got implemented? I don't know the answer, but I think the minute you get into a post-materialist metaphysics, those questions have to come up. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there's a lot to learn and, and find out, definitely. And it brings me to this idea of free will, I suppose, because, I mean, it, it may well be true that our consciousness is external from the brain or certainly survives the destruction of the brain and this metaphysical world exists, but it still wouldn't necessarily imply that our consciousness has free will. And I just wondered, where, where are you on the debate? If you could just summarize uh, free will for me uh, conclusively, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, I talk about that in my, in my book and end uh upside down living. And I conclude that I don't think anyone fully understands it. So that's yeah. kind of where I am. But let's just take this metaphysics as a hypothetical. That is sort of my general worldview. Um, as Erwin Schrodinger said, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, in truth, there is only one mind. So a lot of the quantum physicists, Max Planck said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. What it leads to is this idea that we are all part of one consciousness. But to use the analogy from Dr. Bernardo Castro, we are like whirlpools within a stream of water. So there's the individuation, Steve and Mark, where it feels like we're separate, but at some level of consciousness, we're interconnected. So we're both the individual and this full stream at the same time, which is paradoxical on its own. But let's just take that as a, an analogy. Then all of reality under this analogy is the stream of consciousness, the stream of water. If that were true, that would imply if that's all of reality, then it as a stream should have infinite free will because it is everything. The question then becomes, does Stephen as a whirlpool, how does he interact with the broader stream? Because at one level, he is the full stream, but another level, he's the whirlpool. And that's where it gets pretty dicey for me. I don't know how it flows through. Like, are you flowing through the will of this fuller stream? You, you might be a certain embodiment. And the analogy I use in some of my books is that we might be like puzzle pieces where we have unique attributes and things that we're contributing. Um, and maybe you embody the will of the broader stream through your puzzle piece. So there's limitations because you're only that little puzzle piece. Like, you know, random things can happen. You could have a storm hit your house and, and your electricity goes out. You didn't have control over that, right? There are certain things we certainly don't have free will over, but then other things, it feels like we have an ability to at least control our actions or control our responses to things that happen around us. Yeah, it's uh, it, I like the fact we you you know, even though you've got your convictions and your opinions, you're still in the area of, uh, you know, I can't be 100 percent. I don't know this for sure, which is, which is great because obviously conversation can continue uh, in that way. And I, the way I look at it in terms of free will, I suppose, I mean, if we if we could click our fingers and go back an hour. Uh, when this conversation started and every single condition of the universe remained as it did 
an hour ago. Would we say exactly the same things? I mean, it seems to me like given exactly the same conditions, we'd have exactly the same conversation, which mm. seems to imply to me that free will really is absent. We're just, you know, as as uncomfortable as it might feel sometimes, we maybe we're just biological impulses firing at random. Maybe thoughts are coming into our brain before our, you know, conscious part of our brain is aware of what they are. Is Is that something you still think might be a possibility? I mean, I don't hold it as my current like leading hypothesis, but I, I certainly used to. I mean, it's a mechanistic view of the world. It's almost like if you hit the first domino, you know what's going to happen later. Mm. One's going to hit the next, and it, it's predictable at that point. But to me, I, at least based on everything I've encountered, there is this X factor of consciousness that is not so mechanistic. And quantum mechanics, sometimes people over-correlate uh, it, but it does range some, raise some strange questions, like the observer effect and the double-slit laser experiment. Yeah. I mentioned Dr. Dean Radin from the Institute of Noetic Sciences, he's done some incredible studies, which if they can be replicated continuously are mind blowing, where he does the double slit experiment. And so for those who aren't familiar with it, you shoot a slit through, uh, you shoot a, a, an electron through this double slit. Um, no, well, it's through a, I don't even know how to describe it. Basically, it the electron shows up on a screen differently depending on whether or not there's an observer. So if there's someone observing the experiment, then it appears like a particle. If no one's observing, then it appears on the back screen as a wave of probability. So the question is, is it consciousness or is it something about the mechanism of the observation, like the light, you know? Um, sorry, to doctor, a, sorry, sorry to be a pedant, though. How, how, does, how is it observed differently if nobody's observing it? The result is observed. Got you. So, okay. so basically, if you're looking at, the, looking at the electron go through the thing through a, like a, a, a microscope or something on its way, then it will appear differently on the back versus when it's not being looked at. And right. This is a perplexing thing for physicists. Why is it? Why does this happen? So what Dr. Radin did was ask people to put their mind to the experiment. Because in other cases, you might say, oh, you're shining a light on it and the light particles are affecting it somehow, or there's some other material explanation. And what his results show, again, this is a statistical result that's small but statistically significant, is that the mind is having an effect it becomes slightly more particle-like when the mind is focused on the experiment versus when it's not. So it's almost like the mind is steering it, which is, if, it's, if he's correct and if it can be replicated, would answer this big question in quantum physics because it's not well understood. It's just a really self-conscious particle, as far as I can see. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't approve of the attention, but rather just be left alone. Um, I mean, I love these conversations. I love thinking about the world and the scale and what we don't know. And it, it feels like a fairly unique thing that our species has evolved, you know, the, you know, bipedal primates who have these larger brains that can, you know, we have a theory of mind, we can talk about philosophy, we can run experiments and tests. And this has kind of taken us away from this tiny little tribe mentality where we didn't have to worry about much apart from stuff like food, water, you know, our, our health in a sense. And it, is it, is it good for us to really ponder these massive questions about our existence? Are we, are we in danger of giving ourselves some sort of mental breakdown, getting too close to the, you know, the nature of man? Well, here's the answer I would have given you a few years ago before this exploration. Why does it matter? Let's say it is dangerous and we get on some horrible track. Well, we're all going to die anyway. Hmm. So it's just kind of like, who really cares? <laughs> I, thought, I thought you'd shook off your nihilistic tendencies. I shook it off, but I can, I can revert back to it. And that, that would have been my answer to you. But I, now I have a different answer because I think there is a broader meaning. I don't fully understand what that meaning is, but I think there is purpose to what we're doing. And therefore, I would not 
advocate for things that are going to harm society. Yeah. Whereas before I would have said, well, I, I don't want to hurt people, but in the end, does it really matter? Like, I'm not going to try to hurt people, but if the world goes to hell um, and, and you know, it's, it's, there's war everywhere, d- does it have metaphysical consequences? I would have just said no, because we're all going to die anyway. I suppose uh, to a lot of people, that's kind of um, skirting very closely to the idea of this, um, you know, objective moral values, and we must have some sort of moral authority to derive them. And that's typically pointed out to as, a, as like a god, the, you know, the monotheistic version. Is Are you getting close to that? Are you, are you kind of saying that in order to be objectively moral, we must have some sort of higher power? I lean that way for sure. And I mentioned the life review phenomenon and near-death experiences. People often point to that. Dr. Grayson from UVA, when he talks to the people that come back from when they're resuscitated, they tell him that that life review, when they become other people that they impacted, they relive the events, they tell him that it's beyond morality, that it's natural law. So if you accept that to be true to any degree, it suggests that there is a moral imperative that's built into the fabric of reality itself. And so I lean in that direction. I don't lean it in that direction in a monotheistic sense traditionally. So mm. monotheism to me means that there is a separate being that is God. To me, I look at it from this non-dualistic perspective of one consciousness, one mind. So from that lens, it's a more mystical perspective that each of us has an element of that God within us, or the whole stream would be what you might call God, but it is both within and external. So it's not fully externalized under my perspective. Okay. I mean, this idea of duality is fixed within our, our thinking, isn't it? We tend to feel that we're, you know, the eye, uh, we sort of separate from our brain in a sense. So, I mean, it's interesting there because I, I would have thought you would have been somebody who describes to this idea of duality within the brain. If you feel the, the consciousness can exist external to the brain, unless I've, I've completely misunderstood you. No, you, that's a very astute point you make. Cause what I was describing is sort of a, a middle point, a bridge to where I ultimately end up, which is that I think everything is consciousness, including the brain itself. Everything right. in the physical world is a, is a modulation as Rupert Spira says of consciousness. And we just interpret it as matter. But then I use these analogies like the brains and antenna, but that's a very dualistic framework. There's a brain and then there's consciousness. So it's sort yeah. of like in order to use language to describe this, I, I use these analogies that are not fully accurate. I like the filter analogy a bit more that consciousness is um, experienced in different ways, depending on the vehicle that we operate. And so that preserves a bit more of that. It's just consciousness in a different modulation of it. Yeah, I think as, as well. So a lot of people, I don't know if you're familiar with the neuroscientist, uh, Sam Harris, he's done a lot of work on yeah. free will and consciousness. And he's a, he's a hardcore godless skeptic, but he, he himself is uh a proponent of the idea that consciousness is kind of spooky. There's a lot to understand and there's definitely or potentially something very interesting going on there that contradicts a lot of our, our notions. And he spoke a lot about the idea of um, drugs, uh, funnily enough, uh, hallucinogens and how you can sort of change the way your mind uh, operates to give you experiences that you hitherto be completely unaware of or not even comprehend them existing and is that something you touch on in your work at all do you because i mean i suppose this ties back into this transmitter idea of the brain just twisting a few dials and knobs and getting a completely different experience of reality doesn't it yes it is something i've looked at and i i view it as oh, like psychedelics or other substances are ways of quote unquote, unlocking the filter. A near-death experience might be another state where consciousness is somehow liberated in different ways when things happen to the brain. 
where the brain actually restricts our consciousness. And if you do things to it, like you shut it off when the person's about to die or you give it chemicals, then the things that are normally obscured are not obscured. And there is some emerging evidence and there needs to be more replications of this on, on certain psychedelics where the researchers have found reductions in brain functioning that are associated with the enriched consciousness of the psychedelic trip. I talk about this in my book and also in my podcast series, episode two, um, I have some of the scientists on there. So that would be a way to reconcile what Sam Harris is talking about, that the, 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 the substances are like gateways into these other realms of consciousness. They initiate something that was already there, but the brain was blocking. Yeah. I mean, just in contrast, keeping on the idea of Sam Harris, um, he, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his book, The Moral Landscape, but he, mm -hmm. he would say, you know, our idea of objective morality is, is rooted in this idea of well-being, whereas you look to some sort of external authority or natural law, I think you might have turned it, he, he looks at this idea of human well-being and talks about, uh, you know, moral imperatives in this, this idea of peaks and troughs. And I, I was wondering if you've read that and why doesn't that strike you as a, a particularly compelling way of looking at moral authority? Oh, sorry, objective it. moral value, should I say? Sure. Yeah, I read it a long time ago. But for me, the minute the metaphysical enters the picture and if we acknowledge the near-death experience and the life review, that becomes, if that's accepted as real, then that's pretty explicit. When mm. people come back and say, look, I became all the people that I affected. I felt the pain that I inflicted on them. I felt the joy that I gave them based on my actions. And then these people often, it's not like a hallucination where their life stays the same and maybe they have some, they're troubled. These people will sometimes get divorced. They change their job. I interviewed a man named Danian Brinkley, who's had multiple near-death experiences and life reviews. He relived his combat days in Vietnam. So he was felt like what it was, felt what it was like to be the people that he killed. And he felt what it was like to be the children who no longer had a father because he had killed the father in combat. And he became, he was materialistic in his life, came back from these life reviews and was a hospice volunteer next. Hmm. He said, I'm going to do, do everything differently. So when I hear these stories over and over again of people's lives changing, and that's, this is why at UVA, these are psychiatrists often that look at it, Jim Tucker, Bruce Grayson. They're saying, wow, this is a, a full change in what's going on. So to me, that's compelling. I mean, what Sam Harris talks about, it might, there might be some like biological uh, impact too in all of this, but it's to me, it's more incremental to the broader metaphysics. Yeah. And feel free to completely uh, sidestep, dodge or shirk this question all you like. But just keeping in the uh, the realm of psychedelics, uh, it's always something that's fascinated me. I've always been keen to try it, but I'll be honest, I am too scared. And I was just wondering, you know, for research purposes or just to expand your horizons, have you, have you dabbled in, in this area at all? And if so, uh, any notable experiences you'd like to share to the world? <laughs> Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I've, I've done like very mild things like cacao, for example, which I don't know if people would even call that a psychedelic, where apparently certain substances you can take, you open you up or people will might just be in a more relaxed state. Um, so I, I've had maybe things like that, but never, I've never had one of these experiences like you know, someone does DMT or ayahuasca. And yeah. they say, I, I experience what you wrote about, Mark. I, I hear people tell me this and I experience these things. So I haven't had that, but I've talked to lots of people who have. The reason I, I'm, I'm cautious on it, and it's hard for me to say because I haven't had the direct experience. Other people might contradict this. I just, these other realms, which to me are very real, I think there's dark and light in them. Yeah. And I worry about the dark part of this and what you can, attachments you can get, or can, is there any potential danger? So I think like the ancient traditions that work with ayahuasca and these other plants, they probably need to be done very carefully. And the recreational use concerns me because I think there are probably dangers that we don't even know about. And that does concern me. And I've also talked to people, including one psychiatrist I know who says, I know someone who came back and didn't, was, was not normal psycho, uh, psych, psychiatrically after one of these experiences. But then I know people who had very positive life experiences as well. So 
I try not to give counsel on this because it's outside of my domain, even though I've talked to lots of people who've done it. Yeah, I think after uh, an ill-advised edible session in Amsterdam for me a while back, I've 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 swore off doing anything stronger than a glass of red wine. Um, Mark, where, where can people find more information about your work as well? If they wanted to find out more, uh, where could they find your books? Are you, do you have a social media presence? Sure. My website is my name, markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. And that has info on all five of my books and my podcast series. But I also uh, have my books on Amazon. Uh, they're available in Kindle, Audible, and hard copy for all five. And I am I'm on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's Mark Gober Author. And I have a, a Telegram account where I post lots of things that would probably get me banned elsewhere. Um, <laughs> it's Mark Gober Official. Um, so I, I do post... I've started to do this more where I just post current events, things that I'm looking at. I post articles that are interesting. Excellent. So, I mean, is the bulk of your podcast, is that interview based? Is it you with another guest? What's the general format? Great question. I did this a bit uh, non-traditionally. So I interviewed 50 people long form and they were an hour to two hours. And that's a subscription on my website to get access to those. But the eight episode series that's available for free that most people listen to, it's on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's a conversation between me and my high school buddy who happens to be a producer of sports shows. But he said, Mark, this is interesting. We'll produce your show They're at Blue Duck Media. So it's a conversation between me and him. And we took clips from the people that I interviewed. And he asked me a lot of the great questions that you asked me, Stephen, of like as, sort of as a skeptic. And I'd say, well, I talked to Dr. Grayson or I talked to Nobel Prize winning physicist Brian Josephson. And we used the clips. So in one episode, you might hear on there's an episode on telepathy and one on near-death experiences. You'll hear from multiple uh, experiencers or scientists and it's Excellent. called where's my mind I, I will definitely check that out because uh even though i i'm 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 curious on some things not sure on others it's it's always nice that i mean you, you're clearly passionate about it you're you're evidence focused and you, you strike me as someone who regardless of whether we agree on these things you're trying to get to the truth it doesn't feel like there's any sort of ulterior motive involved in, in you trying to trying to you know put these things forward as as uh, explanations yeah, I want to get to the truth personally, and then I like to share it with people. That's been my pattern. And I, I try not to stick too firmly to any belief system because I just don't know. And our, our brain, whatever it is, limits our ability to understand things. Like infinity, I don't know. Mine, mine certainly does. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Mike, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, speaking to me, and I'll definitely check out more of your work as well. Awesome. I enjoyed it, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Take care.